0: Well, good morning, church family. As you uh, find your way into Colossians chapter 2 this morning, our text is verses 16 through 23. And I'll just say, uh, don't you wish uh, Ben Bolin uh, actually knew how to sing. Um, We would all be uh, even deeply more blessed uh, in that process. And so thank you, Ben, and thank you, choir, uh, for leading us in worship this morning. If I were to to bring before your attention the name Aloise Gruber. How many of you would be familiar with that name? Perhaps some of you might, Jeff Hornbeck does, and rightfully so, but this name is a name that lives in obscurity. Yet Alois Schickelgruber was the father of the famous dictator and tyrant Adolf Hitler. Years ago, uh, Alois, living in Bavaria, Austria, decided that he wanted a better Germanic name, that he wanted to his, see his family be strong national Germans, and so Alois changed his name from Schickelgruber, and he took upon the name Hitler. Because he understood in that moment with all the geopolitical issues on the rise that he wanted to see his family thrive under German nationalism. Now, little did he know what kind of man young Adolf would become at some point, but he did it because he saw the potential that existed before him and and the freedom that would have been afforded to him with with a different kind of name. They didn't have to change the name, but, but he did change the name. And you can imagine with me just for a moment if the world's most famous tyrant was named Adolf Schickel Gruber. It just doesn't have a ring to it. And in doing this, one of Aloise's main motivations behind doing this is because it was alleged that Aloise's mother had an affair or, or slept with, if you will, the, a Jewish baron in Austria. And so it's alleged by some historians that Adolf Hitler himself has family ancestry that follows back into the line of Judaism. Now, we don't have documentation to prove this, and most of those things were expunged by Adolf himself, but but yet the rumors still persist. And so Alois made a a calculated move to set his son up for future success and whatever that might be to to allow him to have the freedom— And the opportunities that would someday afford him. Now it's one thing to change your name for political reasons. To give up something for your family. But but what about the little things that we as Christians sometimes need to give up for the greater cause or for the greater good? Well, this week we have before us a text that examines that issue of liberty. It examines that issue of freedom and and even alludes to a a place of of legalism that can often exist within the context of the church and what we are to do with our freedom and how we are to apply the freedom that has been given to us in Christ. it, It matters deeply for the church as we pursue our own biblical health. We've seen in the book of Colossians that it begins out in this letter with a church that is absolutely besieged by cultural enemies and cultural variables. And inside the church, these men and these women known as the Gnostics had had come in and they had begun to teach another gospel that was not the gospel of Jesus they begin to slowly erode the freedom that was given in Christ and what Christ had accomplished on the cross and the meaning and the implication to those things. And so Paul begins to address two specific things that are perhaps quite peculiar to us at a first reading. And so he says in verse 16 of Colossians 2, therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. For these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now why in the world in this moment would Paul begin to address an issue of other people, individuals, believers in Christ that are passing judgment on fellow believers? For things that, that God has already resolved, if you will, within His atonement and with His death. You see, in this moment, in the time of the church, there were those in the church saying this that the way that we, we walk towards spiritual maturity is we need to go back to what God's Word originally said specifically in the Old Testament laws. And in particular, we're going to hold tightly Leviticus chapter 11. Now, I'm not going to read Leviticus 11 for us, and I will just briefly remind us of, of some of the almost absurdity that exists as God was calling his people to abstain for a couple of particular reasons. But if you were to go back to Leviticus 11 and you were to see this laundry list of foods that they could eat and they could not eat, it included things like, and we would say amen to this, no eating camels or, or rock badgers, no eating rabbits or pigs or anything that does not have fins or Scales, no eating eagles or or certain kinds of birds like ravens and so forth. And it's this list that goes on and on throughout Leviticus 11. And we ask the question: Why in the world would God put a list before His people and say you can eat this and and you cannot eat that? For some of you that ventured off to the state fair, perhaps you felt that way as you looked at the food that was before you. We should eat this and and we should not eat that. How in the world they ever figured out how to deep fry ice cream is beyond me. But yet the Lord gives this list in Leviticus 11. There were physical reasons as to why they couldn't eat certain animals, but there were also spiritual reasons as well. You see, the distinctions in Leviticus 11 that helps us understand Colossians 2, the distinction between the foods was meant to familiarize God's people with the fact of what he understands to be pure and what he understands to be defiled. But yet when Jesus comes, he does away with all of those dietary laws. He he abolishes those things. And yet in the church in this moment, there was quite a contentious spirit that existed between those that were wanting to go backwards to Leviticus 11 and that those were holding to the understanding of what Jesus had done. And so it had created conflict in the life of the church. Jesus was familiar with this same kind of conflict, especially when it comes to to dietary restrictions. And we see this as Jesus interacts with the Pharisees in Mark 7 that were holding other people to their own religious preferences, not to the word of God. And so Jesus rebukes these Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 where he says, Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled. We, we see in Acts chapter 10, Peter wrestling with this idea of, of what has Jesus done according to the law. And, and he has this vision, if you will, in Acts chapter 10, where all of these unclean foods descend to him in a vision. And the word of the Lord says, rise up, kill these animals and eat it. And Peter says, I will not. And then the vision repeats itself at least three times. Reiterating the the idea and the fact that what, what we as man oftentimes deem as unclean, God has made clean. And in the words of Jesus to those Pharisees, it's not about what comes in through your mouth, but rather what is in your heart. And so the point here in this moment in 16 is to remind us and to remind the church That we are not to allow anyone to pass judgment on us in regards to food or drink and and nor should we pass judgment in regards to what God has abolished and what God has done away with. But he goes on in verse 16 and he says in this issue of, of diet, not going back to those things, he also mentions or with regard to a festival or a new moon or even a Sabbath. You see, in early Judaism, they had their special feast days, if you will, according to Leviticus 25. They had their new moon celebrations, according to Isaiah 1:13. They had their Sabbath, and understanding of that in Exodus 20, which we have talked about recently here, even from this very pulpit. But when Christ came, he fulfills all of them. And we no longer, in that essence, celebrate the Sabbath. We now worship on what we refer to, according to Revelation 110, we celebrate the Lord's day. We remember his resurrection. We remember his work. And so we gather on the first day of the week to celebrate all that God has done with God's people. Why? Because he says in verse 17 that these are just a shadow of the things to come. In the substance, it belongs to Jesus. The dietary rules and the restrictions that God gives in Leviticus 11 and so forth are meant to sensitize God's people to the idea that God wants his people to be pure before him. He wants them to be set apart before him. The Sabbath recognizes that that we come and we enter into his rest as he leads us. And as we remember the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, all of these things in verse 16, they are just a shadow of the things to come. And yet within the church, they somehow found themselves having conversations and arguments with one another. They, they were being led astray, if you will, by, by people that didn't have the ability, if you will, in this moment to discern what God's word was explicitly stating. And then therefore the application of that statement. And I think isn't this often true within the context of the church? I think many times we can walk down a, an unhealthy road that begins to breed what we would just term as, as just a legalistic or, or even a Pharisaic attitude and mindset towards things. And, and I want to say to you as your pastor, it is absolutely 100% okay to have your own preferences. It is absolutely all right to, to prefer certain things, but, but the road that we must walk and the path that we must walk is making sure that, that we don't elevate our preferences, if you will, on certain things, and we begin to impose them on other brothers and sisters, on those that perhaps are not as far along in the faith as you or as me, or irregardless of those things, that we understand what God's Word says Explicitly. And we stand on those explicit statements and we apply those explicit statements to the circumstances and to the situations of our life. But we don't let us lead us down a path of of, of legalism. We don't let it lead us down a path where we become the Pharisees or where we become the church in Colossae that is passing judgment over and over and over again on people that they would deem less spiritual than them. Because ultimately, Paul's reminder is these are just a shadow. These new moon festivals and this Sabbath that we talk about and these dietary restrictions, all of these things were meant ultimately to point not to the shadow, but to the real thing. To the real thing that has been revealed in the real person, and the real work of Jesus. They were just meant to to sort of be a curb or, or be a reflection, if you will, so that we would see God's holiness and his perfection on display in our life, and that we would see ourselves in light of that holiness and in light of that perfection. They were always, only ever meant to point to Jesus. For the shadow, if you will, has revealed himself in the form of Christ. And through his death and burial and resurrection, we can now have confidence and we can now have faith and we can walk in liberty. We can walk in the freedom that God affords us in Christ, walking faithfully with him in obedience, full of his spirit, marked by his humility. There are a couple of things that I'll draw your attention to that are applied here and implicit within the text about legalism specifically. Legalism has a a tendency to elevate tradition and elevate preferences with the authority of God's word. And then it ultimately ends up condemning all of those who would disagree with it. It raises it to a level that would be equal and, and par with, with the authority and the substance and, and the things that come from God's word as he has spoken to his people. The legalist then elevates their tradition. They elevate their preference, if you will, and they say this preference and, and, and this idea, this tradition that I have, that it is on, on par with, with what God has said. Friends, that is not the gospel of Jesus. But it is the gospel and the leaven of of what Jesus describes elsewhere in Matthew. It's the leaven of the Pharisees that grows and and is cultivated in the the soils and and in the gardens of the church. Legalism doesn't differentiate between this is what his word says and this is how I believe you should apply it. Legalism says this is what his word says and this is how you apply it to your life based on my understanding. And what Paul is doing in this moment as he talks about food and drink, as he talks about festivals and and worship, he's saying you can drink it if you want, you you can eat it if you want, you can celebrate it if you want, but you don't have to if you don't want. I find it interesting that that just in this first part, and, and nowhere does Paul condemn the church that remembers those things in the Old Testament. Nowhere does he condemn those that that honor the traditions of their of their grandparents and their and their forefathers. He he doesn't condemn it, but what he does here in this moment is he says it's okay to to f- have preferences for those things and and it's okay to have preferences for those things because all of these things are just shadows of he who is to come, of he who has come and his name is Jesus. You see, it is not our preferences, it is not our traditions that bring us together, but Rather, it is the work of Christ. Amen. It's why at a church like this, we can have three different types of services and, and still be in the center of God's will. We can have a traditional service that honors the, the tradition that many of you grew up with, and, and it's your preference. And, and can I say, it's okay that it's your preference. But we can also have a a contemporary service that that honors where our our young people are and our college students are, and it meets them where they're at, and we can still be in the center of God's will. Did you know that? We could also have a a Spanish-speaking service, which many of you don't speak Spanish and you don't attend. And rightfully so, because you don't understand what's going on. And and it's okay to have a preference for an English-speaking service. It's okay for our Latinos to have a preference for a Spanish-speaking service. And if they will come and you will come, and we will worship the same God, the same Jesus, the shadow that has now been revealed in the work of Christ, the, the same message, the same gospel, the same person. And we give the freedom to walk in the midst of those preferences because we're not united by those preferences, you see. We're united by the the Word of God and the work of Jesus. We're united by the scriptures that that we study and and we come before. You see, legalism focuses too often on the tree to the neglect of the forest. It gets hung up on on that one thing. Many years ago, when I became the senior pastor at a church in South Dallas in O'Villa, I wore a coat and tie to to my view view of call, wanted to be respectful, but the very next Sunday that I came, I I didn't wear the coat and tie. I put on the the blue jeans and the Vans, and I put on the button-up. We worshiped in a gym, and and we were a fairly uh, mixed bag of of preferences and different things, And, and I had a sweet, sweet lady. Won't say if she's young or old, but she came to me after the service one day, and she said, uh, "Preacher, if you're not going to wear a coat and tie, I don't think I can worship here." A prophetic statement from my man over here on the right, because that's exactly what I said to her. Well, God bless you. God bless you, and. And I did try in that moment, pastorally, to, to help her differentiate between a preference that she had and understanding that she had. And I wanted to honor that and I told her that I meant no disrespect to her and, and didn't mean it as a slight towards her. I, I just wanted to dress like my, my people dress and, and I wanted them to feel comfortable around me because just as there are some that would say, wear the coat and tie, there are some that say, you wearing the coat and tie makes me very uncomfortable. And so we navigate and we, and we walk through that. A silly example, yes, but, but it was a person that was caught up in, in their preference. And, and it was a person that was caught up. In, and it's okay that, that they had that preference. And it was okay for, for me to have my preference because we worship the same God. Amen. Legalism too often focuses on the tree to the neglect of the forest. But Paul says in verse 16 towards the end, let no one pass judgment on you. There's great liberty in what we Christians can do. As we said before, we can keep the diets or we can forget them. But what it does do is it forbids us, it doesn't give us the right of of anyone to judge or to compel someone to comply with their own personal preferences. It doesn't permit us and it, and it doesn't give us permission one way or the other. And so Paul warns the church about, about this diet. He, he warns the, the church about falling back on, on this Old Testament law, though, though he cautions them. And then he goes on in verse 18 and he, and he says this, he says, in the midst of all of this debate, in the midst of, of all of this hubris that exists here in this moment, this legalism that has crept in because of the Gnostics in the church at Colossae, he goes on, as bad as that legalism is, He he says, I want to warn you of a couple other things as well in the process. Verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. This asceticism is, if you will, what he's referring to is the discipline or the avoidance of, of all sorts of, of indulgence for religious reasons. It's not just the, the restraint, if you will, but, but it's the over-restraint that existed. It's the self-righteousness that, that existed when they walked with a pretentious posture. They, they act in, in one way as these humble and, and simple-minded men and, and women. And, and they say, look how humble we are. And look how lowly we are before the Lord. And look how we have run away from all earthly possessions. And, and what Paul has, is saying is they have made a God out of their own humility, which is an oxymoron and a paradox by itself. When we walk around in, in such ways where uh, we, we want people to see the, the humility that exists within our hearts, we, we have become, by very nature, we have become the prideful people that we are seeking to avoid. When we don't walk with a, with a humble dependency upon him, he says, let no one disqualify you that, that insists that you be this way. That they insist in, in, their, in their preference of you in this way, that it is not wrong to have things, it is not wrong to have nice things, it's not wrong to, to have stuff, but, but it's when that pursuit of those things and in that pursuit of that stuff begins to consume us as believers and it begins to take the place of Jesus himself. And so Paul says you can disqualify yourself. If you insist on, on this self-discipline, you, you create, in other words, what I would just simply call this checklist for righteousness. And if you meet my list, and if you check off these boxes, then you're okay. But if you you fail to to live up this list that, that I've got and this preferred way of, of behaving and and being, if you will, Paul, Paul says you you become the one that disqualifies themselves. You see, these individuals that had crept into the church, they they were using quite deceptive tactics, and they claimed that that they had a deeper knowledge of God that was not rooted in Christ, but rather was derived from their imaginations and and their humility. And this is why he he says, you insist on this asceticism, you worship these angels, you you go about in, in the detail of visions... As if you're the the one that is going to unlock and and unravel all the mysteries of the universe of God. And and Paul says, my friends, do not fall for it. And the worship of, of these angels and these indulgences. You know, many of us are familiar with tarot cards, Many of us are familiar, we, we've seen them before, and if you've ever just seen a tarot card online or you've seen a picture of it, 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 it seeks to unlock the mystery and the will of, of your life or the person sitting next to you. And when you look at these tarot cards with further examination, you see that there's always this elaborate uh, picture that's with it. And it's very colorful and it, and it has this meaning, and that's intentional by design. Because it's meant to to get you to look at it and and get you to think that that there's some kind of mystery that this card can unlock if I can only find the key. And so it's meant as a place of deception and a a posturing to to lure you in, if you will, and, and to make you think that there's something that you don't know about your life that the person who can read the card will then tell you. But these were men and women that did not have the mystery that they proclaimed. They did not have the humility that they sought to, to live by. Because you see, true humility in the life of the believer it is understanding the capacity to see myself in God's light in the context of his holiness and in the context of my own sinfulness, that true humility is wrapped up in the character and in the nature of God, that he is holy and I am not. That he is undefiled and pure and that I am a sinner in desperate need of him. And so we walk in that posture. As one theologian said, humility isn't about thinking you are great. It's not about thinking you're small. It's not about being prideful. It's not about being pretentious. It's it's really just about not thinking of yourself At all. You're not better, you're not worse. But it's a posture that we live in seeking to serve the person that is next to us because the person that is next to us, our neighbor, is the one that we deem better than us. They are the one that needs the help. That's why we come in here in this room and I tell our staff regularly. And when we come to a worship service and we come in, you'll see them. They're, they'll make laps around this worship center. And we tell them, and I'll tell you this here today, that the most important person in this room on Sunday morning is the person that's sitting by themselves. The person that hadn't been spoken to or or talked to. The person who hadn't had a handshake or a hug. The the person that hadn't been acknowledged. And so when we come in this room, we are creatures of habit more often than not. And we we come and we sit and and we want to lay our things out. But then as a people, in order to be a gospel-centered church full of hospitality and humble and wise people, we go and find the people that are sitting by themselves. They are the most important person in this room. And we show them that and we we demonstrate that to them. Humility is the direction that we are headed. It's not the destination that we arrive at. And the people in this church at this moment, they they thought they had arrived at the destination of humility. and So they began to promote a, a false gospel insisting on certain things and the worshiping of angels and details about visions puffed up with reason in their mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished. Verse 20 goes on and he says, if, Christ, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do you submit to other preferences? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, the checklist for righteousness, do this, don't do that. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom." In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Because only Christ is the one that can stop those things. Only he is the one that has the power to bring the dead and to make them alive. Only he is the one that binds the wounds of the heart of you and me who takes our hurts and, and takes our pains. Only he is worthy to reconcile and to restore those things. For the shadow that the law portrayed has now been revealed in Christ. And now, friends, he is our everything. He is our standard. One preacher put it this way. He said it reminded him of an old fable about a dog who was carrying his bones in the middle of the wood. And he had his bone, and he was as happy as he could be as a dog. And he, and he comes up upon this stream, and he looks into that stream, and, and beholden to him, he, he sees another dog on the other side of the stream as he looks into the water. And, he, and that dog looks like him, and, and in fact, he's carrying a bone just like him. And so that dog decides that he wants the bone of the other dog. And so he drops his bone out of his mouth that he actually had that was, that was substantive, that, w- that was real, and he drops the real bone as he reaches into the water to, to grab the other bone, and, and he finds out pretty quickly that he was just looking at a shadow, just looking at a reflection. But here's the irony of that story, that in the pursuit of the reflection, in the pursuit of the shadow, he missed the real thing. In the pursuit of all of those things in our lives that that don't matter for eternity, could it be that we're missing the real thing? That the shadow has been revealed in Christ. That he is the one that holds our feet to the fire, if you will, because he entered into the fire. He is the one that that makes us whole. And, And yet in this moment, Paul is reminding them, if Christ has done all of these things, why do you keep going back to these other things? I find it striking that... There were people in the church that had heard the right gospel and that a group of people had come in and and portrayed themselves in in a certain way. And and so all of a sudden, this this group that was being led astray by these Gnostics, they wanted to be on the inside of this group. They wanted to to be in in the know, if you will. And they got trapped in this idea of trying to run with the group that, that they shouldn't have been running with to begin with. And so Paul essentially, pastorally and kindly and, and with humility, he, he says, but almost abruptly, do not let the pursuit of this group disqualify you before the Lord and his people. Don't fall into the trap. And we ask the, the bigger question here is, well, why would they do such a thing? They know the truth, yet there was this allure to, to be drawn into this group. And, and they knew that, that something was off, that it wasn't the gospel that we heard from Epaphras and, and other missionaries that had come on behalf of Paul that, that planted this church. It, it wasn't the word. And, and I think they got lost and forgot really what their identity was made of, namely in Jesus. And it's why Paul speaks so emphatically, if with Christ... The fullness of of God on display in bodily form. He he has come and he has revealed himself and they got trapped in the identity of trying to fit in with a group that they didn't belong with, a group that, that did not believe the gospel of Jesus. And I think it boils down to like so many sins in our own life, really an issue of identity. We take upon certain identities within our, our own lives. We, we become, in some ways, our, our failures and our mistakes. We, we take on those failures and we take on those mistakes. The, the shame that we feel because of something that we did or the pain that we have endured, we, we become that pain, if you will. We, we believe that shame sometimes and forget whose we are in Christ. And I think some of you this morning just need to be reminded that you are not your mistake. You are not your shame. You are not your pain. You are not your suffering. You are not your family breakdown. You are not your abuse. You are not your pride. You are not your addiction. You are not your pain. You are not your sin. You are not your past. You're not your future. But rather, you are Christ, and He is yours. You're made in the imago day in the image of God. And he has said, you are family. You are my brother. You are my sister. And it says in Zephaniah elsewhere that he loves us so deeply that the prophet Zephaniah says he sings over his children. And he exalts over them. He sings over you. Can you imagine that for just a moment? It's one thing to speak a truth over and into someone's life. But isn't it quite another, if you, if you wrote him a love song, if you will, and you sang that song and we hired Ben Bolin to sing for us every time, <laughs> to sing and, and to delight over that person, this is what the word of the Lord says to us today. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, to the ways of the flesh, to the old way, why go back? Why not look at him? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the good news of your gospel in Jesus. We thank you that you have redeemed us. You have given us freedom. You have given us preference. And Lord, we say thank you for that. But we pray as a people that in the midst of that freedom that you give us, that we would not use it as a license to be sinful. We would not use it as as permission to to do whatever we want, whenever we want. That we would always show restraint, always walk in obedience full of your Holy Spirit, always seeking to to be faithful to you, to listen to your voice as you speak to us, as you put us on mission and send us out of this place. So Father, would you help us be faithful as you are faithful always. We pray in the name of Christ, amen.